Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be looking at those first three verses. In just a moment, if you're visiting Christ Church, my name is Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here. And uh, we're glad you're with us. We're completing today a series of messages we began uh, on 4th of July, looking at uh, that weekend, looking at the 11th chapter of Hebrews and what it says about faith. Uh, The entire book of Hebrews is written on this premise. Jesus is greater than any other way you can try to save yourself. Whether you try to obey the law completely and be pure in that, whether you trust in angels or uh, prophecies or all of these other things that are presented in the 10 chapters of Hebrews going into this chapter, the whole premise is Jesus is greater than any other means by which we can be saved. In fact, he's the only way that truly works. And so in the 11th chapter, he, uh, the author begins to give us people's stories from the Old Testament of those who lived by faith and how they exemplified that. And it was different for each one of them. They all chose a different way to live out their faith. And we've defined faith for this series, and I think it's consistent through Scripture in a very simplistic manner. We believe that God is good, and we believe that he keeps his promises. By being good, we believe that he's for us. He's not against us. When God tells us not to do something, it's not to keep us from having a good time. It's to keep us from harming ourselves When God tells us to do something, it's not because he wants us to suffer because of our past sin. It's because it is good for us. It is what's best for us. It will pay off longer than any other thing the world can offer us. So we believe God's for us. He's good. And we believe that he keeps his promises. That there are blessings and curses in life. He's warned us in advance. There's no surprises. If we trust him and live by faith, there's a great blessing. So this is how we've defined faith. And we began to look at stories of like Enoch or Noah or Moses or Abraham and the, the stories that are told of how people chose to trust in God's goodness and his faithfulness and what they learned from it and what we learned from them. And with all that in place, I'd like to take you to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Now, this isn't just my idea. I hate, never want to come across to you like I know so much more than all these scholars who have studied for thousands and thousands of years and built off of good scholarship. But I am not the only one who believes that verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 12 could very well be included in chapter 11. So we're going to close this series by looking at those three verses. Let's look. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. Therefore, connecting it all to the previous 11 chapters, tying it all together, saying now that we know all that we know, that Jesus is greater than all of these things and that there have been people living by faith because they trust in the goodness of God for all of these centuries. Therefore, what are you and I going to do? And then the author of this passage begins some grand imagery here. One of my favorite sermons, and I think in the last 28 years I've probably preached it three or four times, gratefully never here. But I loved preaching it in Michigan, at church camps and all of this. And I would paint this scene from this passage that there was this big stadium. I love sports. So let's picture a big football stadium. 
American football, the way it's supposed to be, right? And so you, you look up, and there you are, and you're in the game, and the coach puts you in this game of faith, and you have the ball, and I had this huge, I could build this thing for hours, and there you were, and it was your time to run the ball, and, and God was going to provide the play, and he's going to ask you to run a specific play, and you were going to do it. And then you looked up because we were surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. That the, up there was Moses with a big brat full of mustard all over his chin, and he was cheering you on. And there's Abraham with a big pack of red licorice, and he was just spinning one in the air going, Go, Mark! And I had this wonderful imagery, and people's tails are wagging, and they're like, Yeah! And the non-sports fans are going, Huh? And everybody else is going, Yeah! And it was just awesome. And if you got one yard, God was happy, and it was a good sermon, just not biblically accurate at all. Because, see, I think I've learned through my own study and some smart people that the cloud of witnesses is not witnessing what I'm doing. They're witnessing what God did. That changes the whole sermon, ruins it. I hate when biblical facts take out a good sermon. But the truth is, They're witnessing to the fact that God is faithful. They're witnessing to the fact that faith is worth it. They're witnessing to the fact that life's going to be hard, but God is always going to be good. They're witnessing to some truths that I needed to know. They're not cheering me on, per se. Maybe they are, but I don't need it. I just need someone, some veteran, someone who's been down the road before me. Every one of us needs this. The Bible says that the older men are to mentor the younger men and the older women are to mentor the younger women. Why? Because I need someone who looks me in the eyes in one of the worst moments of my life when I'm struggling to wonder if this is all worth it. I need some veteran to look at me and go, I know what you're going through and it is worth it. That's what it means to be surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, testifying to what is good. And then the author jumps in and Once again, and I I love this because most of the good analogies and metaphors in the New Testament are sports. The author grabs the race metaphor about running a race. Now, I don't know what it is about my family, so I use the word Christian. It's awkward when I'm preaching. But the Christian household, my genetics, we have really good pulse, heart rate, very steady, very low, very sedate. And this has happened to me more than once, and it always makes me laugh. I'll go in, they'll put that big thing on my arm, they'll squeeze it all up, and they'll give me my blood pressure, and they'll give me my heart rate and all this stuff. And twice now in my lifetime, a nurse has looked at me, and I know she's being sweet and kind, but she looks at me and goes, wow, you have a really good heart rate. Are you a runner? (laughs) Isn't that funny? No. No, I run to the bathroom in the refrigerator, that's it. It just cracks me up. Oh, yeah, yeah, 12, 13 miles a lifetime. Yeah, yeah. See, I only run when coaches would get mad at me and punish me. I know this will shock you, but I could run my mouth in high school, and the coach would go, Christian, shut up. Go do a mile. I'm like, yeah, okay. And I would talk the whole time running the mile. So, no, I'm not a runner. And those of you, and I know I'm going to get emails on this, but I think I'm right. Some of you will call and say, oh, man, I love running. You're broken. Seriously. Get help. You like what it does for you, but nobody, nobody can be six miles into a road getting hit by horse flies and everything else, dodging traffic, and go, this is the greatest thing I could ever done right now. Now, you like the reward of it. So having snapped that all together, let's look at it this way. It's a race of faith, the author says. And he uses an interesting word for race. He uses a word that we get the English word 
agony from. Okay? This race of faith is hard. It's not a sprint. It's not 40 yards. Run it as fast as you can and it's over with. No, it is a long race. It will take a long time. And you can't start it accidentally and finish it accidentally. Are you with me, church? It is going to take effort and dedication and purpose. You're going to have to put in work. You're going to have to choose to do it. Really created this image. See, there's other images of being a Christian. It's called being a soldier, putting on the armor of God. Paul says, I box, I I buffet my body, I train myself for the beating that it's going to take to be a person of faith in the world in which we live. The imagery through the New Testament is amazing. One place he calls it a wrestling match. In one place we're called slaves. In another place we're called farmers. In another place we're called brides. All of these images are showing us that you're not a farmer for one day expecting a produce. You farm the entire season, the whole cycle. You're not a soldier for a moment. You're a soldier for the duration of the war. You're not a bride for five minutes. You're a bride for a lifetime. Are you with me, church? The imageries are not short-term. All of them have length, endurance, duration. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 26, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. We're not Forrest Gump, people. You don't put on a pair of shoes and run to the West Coast. And then what do you do when you get there? Thought I'd turn around and run back home. No, you have a purpose. You have an aim. You see, we don't run. We run to be faithful. We don't run just to say we ran. And I worry in the church today that there are a lot of people who come to church because it's not a bad idea. In fact, I have a bracelet on that says, Why Church? If you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you. There are boxes or buckets in the back of the tables in the back of the room. If you weren't here last week, would you grab one of these bracelets if you want to? And wear it and ask, pray this prayer. God, have somebody who doesn't know you well. Ask me about my bracelet so I can invite them to understand why should anybody be a part of the church. Because this is a race we all need to get in, but we all need to run so as to finish. We don't just get in the race to say we started it. You get in a race to complete it. In Galatians 5, Paul said to that church, using the same imagery, you were running well, who hindered you? Why'd you quit? Why'd you stop? What happened? So the word for race comes from the word A-G-O-N-A, and we get the word agony. And he says here in this that we're to put off every encumbrance, every weight. If I were a runner and I decided I wanted to go out and run two miles, I know I wouldn't wear work boots. I know I wouldn't wear my ski outfit. I wouldn't have my big puffy pants and my big North Face coat. I wouldn't go out there with a bunch of extra weight on me. I wouldn't try to go run two miles in blue jeans. It just makes common sense, right? If I'm going to run a race, if you go to the stores and you see what runners wear, it's the lightest, most flexible material that's intended to pull the moisture off their body so they can run freely and loosely and not be hindered or distracted or discouraged. It's all of that. And the author of this passage says, if you and I are going to run this agonizing thing, this thing that takes endurance, that's not always going to be comfortable, that you choose how you wear your clothing, you choose how you prepare yourself. You don't just go out and decide you're going to run 13.1 miles. No, no, you're not going to run a half a marathon if you have not plotted it out and made some 
disciplined decision. So let's talk about us that don't run. You say you want to draw close to God, right? I mean, we're in church. I'd hope somebody would want that. You'd like to know more about the Bible. You'd like to know more about God. You'd like to be more spiritually in tuned with yourself and with the world and with others. You want all of this. So you have to take off the blue jeans and the work boots. You have to get rid of the things that distract you. And most of the things that are distracting us are not evil. I don't ever want to be, a, I don't ever want this church to be a place that has a list of the 17 things real Christians don't do. But you know the things that are distracting you from becoming the person you desire in your heart to become. The thing that makes you tear up in this place. The thing that makes you say, I want that. I need that. How do I get that? Then you have to sometimes do amazing things. I've learned the hard way, but it's true. The television that turns on, turns off. I want everybody in this room to know this. You can turn your cell phone off and the world will still revolve. And when you turn it back on, everyone else survived. We don't need to know everything, every moment, all the time. You can fast from more than food. You can fast from the need to be important, to be available, to always be in the know. I'm not angry, but if you're going to run this race of faith, you're going to have to say no to some good things so you can say yes to some better things. So drop the weight. Drop the encumbrances. Drop the distractions. So I want to give you two things this morning. Two things that this passage teaches us. That not only is it a race, and not only is it going to be hard, and we're going to have to make choices like everyone we studied in this series did. I want to show you two things from the text. Our ability to handle life's difficulties will depend on our life's focus. Our ability to handle life's difficulties will come down to what we focus on. It says in verse 2, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The interesting terminology. You, I'm told when you run a long race, you fix your eyes on a time. You fix your eyes on a goal. You fix your eyes on a location. I know when I have exercised, like 30 years ago, I remember this. That if you said you're going to exercise for 30 minutes or you're going to lift X number, the repetitions mattered. If I want to do this weight a certain amount of time, I'm going to focus. I've got to get to 30. I've got to get to 30 reps. And so you count down. And 30 reps, and what I, most of us have found out whenever we've done anything <clears throat> excuse me, that exerts us, once we cross that 30, there's a burst of accomplishment that allows you to go 5 or 6 or 10 more. We've all had that moment, but it's because we had a goal in mind. Here's what I want you to understand about faith. The object of our faith is as important as the intensity of it. The object of our faith is as important as the intensity of it. If you're running without a goal, you won't run for very long. You won't run very hard. You'll run until you're uncomfortable. But if you have a goal, if you have a time, if you have a distance, and you're running toward that, you will run with energy and effort because that goal is what's leading you. And author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Why? Why? Why Jesus? Because he's the goal. The goal is not to win the race. The goal is not to be the fastest or the strongest or to run the most comfortable pace. The goal is Jesus. Run toward him and he will lead you as far and as long as you need to go. He becomes the goal. 
One commentary um, posed a bunch of questions, and he said, actually, the Greek word used here is kind of a negative word, and it should be translated, look away to Jesus. thought that was interesting. Look away to Jesus. Don't focus on the things the world's offering you. How you look, how you act, how much power you have, how much money you have, how much people think of you. No, don't look to those as the goals of your life. Look to Jesus, and he will show you the God who's good and the God who keeps his promises. I want to ask you a series of questions, and so I'm going to expect an answer. I know that's awkward here, but let's try it again. Another week, we're going to learn together. I want to, ask you the, I want to show you a couple of scenes in Jesus' life, and I want to ask you this question. Here's the question I want a response to. Do you think in that moment that Jesus had regrets for giving himself completely to God? Okay? We got to know right away. I like that. Good. I hope that's there three more times. Here's what we have. When Jesus was at the age of roughly 12 years old in the temple teaching a bunch of scholars and rabbis, and he was correcting their false assumptions about the Old Testament... Do you think he had any regret in that moment when he was being questioned that he gave himself completely to God? Okay. So when he was working with these 12 disciples, fishermen, tax collectors, warriors, and they didn't get him at all. And they were arguing about who's the greatest. And they weren't even in the competition. Do you think he had any regrets that he gave himself completely to God? When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, And he was asking God, can we do it any other way? Because this is going to hurt really, really bad for a real, real long time. And he was broken and crushed. Now you're nervous, aren't you? Do you think he had any regrets that he gave himself completely to God? Both services this morning, it's gone from no to no to uh, no. When he was on the cross. And he quoted the psalm and he cried out, my God, my God, where are you? Why have you left me? Do you think he had any regrets that he gave himself completely to God? You want to say no, right? How can you say no when all four of those situations were hard and awkward and uncomfortable and disconcerting? Because Jesus knew who God was. And what we've learned for nine weeks is when you know that God is good and you know that God is faithful, your circumstances cannot overcome your faith. But when your faith is connected to how comfortable you are, how powerful you are, how well-liked you are, and how you have everything you need, then you can be distracted from faith because circumstances have become our God. So Jesus knew who he was. Fix your eyes on that. Being fully human, not just, not robot God on earth, but a full man who had to make choices like Enoch did, like Abel did, like Moses did, like Abraham did, like Jacob, Isaac, and Joseph did. All of these people had to choose, and Jesus himself had to choose in every one of those moments, do I know who God is and can he be trusted? Then it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In fact, even in the bumper video that you saw before I came out that read our passage to us this morning, it even had the word, the pioneer, and perfecter of our faith. Some translations say the author and finisher of our faith. So I began to say, how can this word be so different? Mine says, uh, NIV says, the author and perfecter of our faith. When I look at that, what does that mean? And I learned something powerful. The word for author or or pioneer is actually a word that would go back to olden days and it would sound like the word champion. Let me take you back to the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. You have a young man named David. David takes sack lunches to his brothers who are at war. 
And when he brings the lunches to his brothers to find out for his dad how they're doing, he comes into a scene where in the morning, on the day of battle, a large man named Goliath walked into a valley. And Goliath was a large mammal. He was a big dude. And he was impressive. And he began talking smack about Israel's God. And David, this young kid, saw him out there and said, who's the big goon, my paraphrase? Who's the goon running his yapper out there? And his brother said, you little spoiled brat, go home. Tell dad we're fine. Get out of here. You have no business here. You're not a soldier. And then when he heard Goliath yapping about God, David said, I'll take him. David chose to be the champion for Israel, and Goliath was the champion for the enemy. And the champions would meet before a battle, and they would battle it out, and it would be an omen. Whoever's champion won, that would be an omen that their God was greater than the other side's God, and that would dictate the victory. I want to start over. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the champion of your faith. Church, do you hear what I just told you? He won. The omen is this. Our champion defeated death, so death cannot threaten you even if it takes your life. Where's your sting, death? Where's your victory, death? It's gone through the resurrection. What propelled Jesus through the garden and through the cross should propel us. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the champion of your faith. He's won the victory. You see, it's not about you and I running the fastest race of faith. How many of you feel like right now you're running in faith? How many of you feel like you're walking? How many feel like you're crawling? How many feel like you're squatting? How many of you feel like you have passed out? So what do you do in all those situations? You keep going because the winner's already been declared. His name is Jesus. But the crown goes to those who finish. Church, are you with me? No, you're not. It's really quiet in here. We should be hallelujah and jumping in the aisles. He won, we win. He finished the race. Our time, excuse me, our time is not important. What's important is that we finish. That the crown goes to the one who finishes the race. Run the race. Finish the course. Do the work. You don't have to set the record. The record's been set. Our champion won. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And then your circumstances will become less than secondary. They'll become minimal. So I want to ask you another question quickly. Knowing what you know now about Jesus, his death on the cross, and his resurrection three days later. Knowing what you know now. If you were there, now this is complicated, but track with me a moment. If you were there next to his mother Mary and the disciple John, and Peter was in the background grieving for what he'd done, If you were there in that moment and you saw Jesus dying on the cross, knowing what you know now, that he would be resurrected, and by that resurrection we would all live with God in perfection again. Knowing what you know now, would you try to have stopped the cross? Would you have begged for their mercy? Or would you be able to walk up behind Mary and say, Mary, it's going to be okay. It's, trust me, Sunday, everything changed. Could you, during the crucifixion, could you speak to the hope that you knew that God was faithful to his promise? Or would you have been caught up in the moment and begged for mercy toward Jesus? Because here's what I want you to know. When you're carrying your cross, 
it just seems like the blackest of afternoons. But if you know what's coming on Sunday, can you carry your cross, church? Fix your eyes on Jesus, who went to the cross knowing Sunday was coming. He's the champion of the faith. He's the reason we do this. He's the reason we live. You see, all other world religions and their leaders, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, Krishna, they all tell you this is the way to get to your God. This is how you do things. This is the way to go. Jesus is the only one who never says, here's how you get to God. Jesus is the one who says, I'll take you there. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The one who doesn't say, here's what you do. Jesus says, here's what I did. Follow me. Second thing. It's not only our focus. Our ability to finish the race of faith must be modeled after his victory. And this is what his victory looked like. Verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the champion, and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you may, church, I want you to read this with me, so you will not grow weary and lose heart. Knowing what we know, but it says Jesus did all of this, endured, scorned, shame. He did all of this for the joy set before him. What joy did he have? When they were piercing his body, when they were mocking him, when he saw his mother devastated and crushed, when he saw Peter broken by shame, when he knew that Judas was hanging by a rope from a tree, having killed himself in his deepest grief and remorse for betraying his master. In all of those moments, what joy was there? It was the joy set before him. You see, on the day you carry your cross, it always seems darkest, bleakest, and my God, my God, where are you? But knowing what's coming on Sunday, the resurrection and the hope, Jesus knew who God was. Jesus knew what he would do. Jesus knew he could be trusted. Hebrews 11:6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The Apostle Paul would write in the letter to the Philippians, three, verse, chapter 3, verse 13, one of my favorite parts of that entire book. I do not regard myself as having laid a hold of it. Yet one thing I do, tell me this doesn't sound like what's written in Hebrews, but the one thing I do, I forget what lies behind me. I strip off all the encumbrances. I take off the work boots and the blue jeans and I get myself ready to go on the path I need to go on. I'm preparing myself to run this race. And I reach forward to what lies ahead. I press on. I pursue. I run toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Church, I have two questions and I'm done. Is God good? And can that good God be trusted by you to keep every promise he's ever made to you? Then let's do what we need to do to get off the ground and start following the path of Christ and finish the race. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. 
For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.